Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. Today, we are very honored to have with us Sir Richard, Professor Richard Evans. Uh, Professor Evans served as Professor of History at the University of Cambridge, President of Cambridge's Wilson College, and Provost of Gresham College in London. Professor Evans has authored numerous books on European and German history, including the award-winning three-volume Third Reich Trilogy. And today we will be discussing Sir Richard's The Hitler Conspiracies, a fascinating, insightful, and entertaining analysis of five Nazi-related conspiracies. It's a relatively thin book, but um, a page-turner, and I urge all our viewers and listeners, as I did, to simply go on to Amazon, click a button, and it gets delivered right to your home. Uh, Thank you again um, for being with us today. Uh, To start off, a little bit about your background and how you became interested in World War II, Nazi history, and conspiracy theories. Yeah, well, thank you, Ari. It's uh, very good to be here, and thanks very much for inviting me. I, I am, as you can hear, I'm British, um, but my family are all Welsh. Uh, my parents learned English at school in North Wales. They were native Welsh speakers. And we grew up in, I grew up in London, uh, on the eastern edges of London, uh, where there was still quite a strong Welsh community at the time, uh, in the post-war years. And we used to go into the East End quite a lot. And uh, my interest was sparked by seeing all the bomb sites. The East End of London was quite heavily bombed uh, during the war. And I wanted to know as a child who'd done this and why. It all seemed very shocking. And then later on, of course, I got interested in history for other reasons. If you go to North Wales, you'll find a lot of uh, wonderful medieval castles, for example, put up by the English to subjugate the Welsh in the Middle Ages. And also when I first went with my parents, there were some, uh, still a lot of ruins, uh, non-working, but recently ruined slate quarries. My grandfather was a slate quarryman in North Wales. uh, And that also sparked uh, an interest. And then I went to Oxford and in the late 60s, early 70s, that was a time when um, German history was just opening up. The Germans had had a, period of amnesia after the war they tried to forget about it but by the late 60s that was all changing and the first uh, uh, major works on um, uh, on the Nazi period had uh, appeared there was a big debate started up about uh, how deep the roots of Nazism went back into German history and that's what got me interested and of course when you get into a into a subject you then stick with it usually the questions you answer just throw up further questions. And so here I still am, half a century later, still working on German history, still trying to answer questions about the Nazis. And one of the things that really struck me uh, in the last 10, 15 years is how, uh, particularly with the rise of the Internet, and social media, uh, and which you might call the kind of crisis of truth in our public culture, the a number of conspiracy theories about Nazism started to multiply. Old conspiracy theories were warmed up again and given new traction. Uh, Many new books came out peddling conspiracy theories. 
um, probably more since the year 2000 uh, than in the half century before that. So uh, that got me really interested as I was finishing my my three volume history of Nazi Germany that you kindly mentioned. And I raised a grant and I got a team together and we started looking at conspiracy theories in all their aspects. And it was a multidisciplinary team. We had an anthropologist, political theorist, a philosopher, an internet engineer and so on. And my part of it was to look at these conspiracy theories on Nazi Germany. And that resulted in the book that you kindly showed your audience. What is the Protocols of the Elders of Zion? Right. The protocols. Protocols means minutes, we would say today uh, in in English. Uh, It purports to be the minutes of a meeting of unnamed, unidentified Jewish elders who met allegedly on the fringes of a World Zionist Congress in 1897. Uh, Now, Zionism was a very small fringe movement at that time in the late 19th century. Uh, but this document shows the Jewish elders who su- supposedly meet at this conference uh, uh, plotting revolutions, economic crises, trying to destabilize the world uh, in order to rule the world. Uh, it is, in fact, was exposed as a forgery, not a very clever forgery either. Uh, particularly after the war. And I tell the story in my book and how it was discovered. It's put together from a kind of satirical document uh, produced by French opponents of the Emperor Napoleon III in the mid-19th century, a kind of Gothic novel, uh, some extra new things. Uh, It's put together in Russia. We're not quite sure who exactly who put it together, Sometimes said it was the Tsarist secret police, but that doesn't seem to be in the case. Uh, there's uh, uh, a candidate for the authorship is a, a man called Pavel Khrushchevan, who uh, had instigated an anti-Jewish pogrom and needed a document to justify it when he ran into criticism from liberals in late Tsarist Russia. So he thinks about 1902, 1903 it was put together, exposed as a forgery by the Times correspondent in Istanbul who was talking to Russians who noticed the plagiarism in it. In 1920, that was confirmed by a long trial held about its authenticity in uh, in the mid-1930s in in, uh, Bern in in, um, Switzerland. So that's a document. It's very short. It is uh, rather crazy. You can't imagine anybody being stirred up to commit anti-Jewish acts by it. But it was used by anti-Semites, including Hitler, who didn't read it, but he read a digest of it put, put out by Henry Ford, the motor manufacturer, who was a, a serious anti-Semite. Uh, it's used to justify their pre-existing anti, anti-Semitism. Uh, they, they held it up and they said, look, here's the proof. Here's the proof of our, uh, of our belief that the Jews are engaged in a worldwide conspiracy to subvert civilization, and in particular, of course, as Hitler would say, subvert the German or Aryan race. So you you just alluded, how influential was uh, the protocols in Nazi propaganda or in Nazi ideology? Well, that's a good distinction you make there, because 
uh, we have some entries in Goebbels, the, the propaganda minister's uh, diaries, very voluminous diaries, where he says he's always being told by his staff at the propaganda ministry the protocols are useless. Uh, they're so incoherent, they're so incompetent, that nobody's going to really be converted to anti-Semitism. He says, well, maybe that's not right. Maybe we can use them. But, the, but they didn't really. They were reprinted. Uh, the Nazi ideologue, Alfred Rosenberg, was uh, a partisan of the protocols. He reprinted them. And, of course, what was the important thing were the commentaries and the chapter headings that later editors like Rosenberg put on the protocols to try and bring them up to date and trying to point out their relevance to the present day. But the Nazis, on the whole, they didn't really need the protocols. They were already rabid anti-Semites. They used them, as I said, sometimes to justify their anti-Semitism, but they had other much more effective uh, means of propagating their uh, racist, anti-Semitic views, film, including newspapers, all of those kinds of things. So I think it's important. The importance of the protocols has been quite seriously exaggerated by historians. What is the main thesis moving along behind the stab in the back theory? Uh, well, that's the second uh, of my chapters, Ari. So um, the stab in the back, uh, I don't know how many Wagner fans there are in Israel these days, um, but uh, leaving aside the whole issue of Wagner's anti-Semitism, a key point in his ring cycle is at, towards the end where the villain, Hagen, stabs the hero, Siegfried, uh, in the back, uh, because Siegfried is brave and cannot be defeated by a kind of full frontal assault. And so Siegfried dies and you have the twilight of the gods and so on. Uh, that's a stab in the back. And that was an image used uh, at the end of World War I uh, by uh, army generals in particular and the extreme nationalist right to explain how Germany was defeated in World War One when the Germans were led to believe by the army that they'd been winning all along. As you know, it was a stalemate. Uh, no, neither side seemed to be winning until 1918. Uh, America and the United States had come into the war in 1917. It took a while to get the troops trained and troop cross and get the equipment and so on. But in the spring of 1918, the... Uh, Germans had defeated the Russians. There'd been two revolutions in Russia, and the Bolsheviks led by Lenin had sued for peace at any price. Russia was in a terrible state. So the Germans were able to transfer huge numbers of troops from the Eastern Front to the Western Front and launch the Spring Offensive. But there's two factors in um, the military, in, in, in the state of the military at the time. One is barbed wire, and the other is a machine gun, and between them, they dominated the war up to that point. Defense, you just couldn't get past them, and so it was in the spring offensive. Eventually, it petered out. It couldn't get past the machine guns, trenches, barbed wire of the Western Allies, and the Germans started to run out of material and men and were pushed back. In the summer of 1918, huge numbers of fresh American troops are now coming onto the battlefields, the, above all, the Allies had tanks, which there's no resistance. So all of a sudden, any announcement at all, the, the leading general, Ludendorff, Erich Ludendorff, 
told the government it's no good. We're not going to win. Uh, I have to say we've got to sue for peace before it's too late. And so they did. And it was very sudden, announced very late. Everyone in Germany is shocked and surprised. And a lot of people on the nationalist right explained this by saying uh, that the army wasn't defeated. It was stabbed in the back by socialists and communists uh, and Democrats and on the home front uh, and a kind of subversion. And one extreme version of this was the idea, the claim that it was Jews who'd masterminded the stab in the back. The home front failed, the military front did not, but it was too much for them. Um, and that was taken up then by the extreme right in the Weimar Republic and the Democratic Republic founded uh, as a result of the defeat, the defeat of the Kaiser and the authoritarian system that he ran. Uh, and um, it was a, a central belief, I think, of, of Hitler and, and the Nazis. It inspired their belief that if they're going to fight another war, which Hitler intended to do from the very moment he began in politics, a war to reverse the results of World War I, then you had to somehow get rid of subversion at home. There was to be no second stab in the back. And that's the belief that powered his attempts from when he came to power in 1933 to uh, the war, 1939 to 40, to drive the Jews out of Germany. In fact, the Jews in Germany were more patriotic than, than the average German. Uh, the, many Jews had fought on the front in World War uh, One, they were, on the whole, moderate, liberal to conservative uh, citizens in Germany. And in fact, it was recognised by the titular head of the army in World War One, Hindenburg, uh, who became Field Marshal Hindenburg, who became um, the head of state in the Weimar Republic. And when Hitler uh, passed a law dismissing Jewish civil servants from uh, teachers, lawyers, and all the rest of it, uh, in, in 1933, Hindenburg said, oh, you can only do it if you don't dismiss the Jews who have a good war record. Um, so uh, that's a stab in the back. And the, the, the Nazis believed in it, but they were very careful about using it in their propaganda because <clears throat> they wanted in the late 20s, early 30s to win over the votes of the middle classes, including millions of people who'd been civilians in Germany on the home front. And they did not want to offend them by saying, you stabbed the army in the back. So they went pretty easy on it. Just going back to <clears throat> generals and, and General Ludendorff, <clears throat> they actively promote the stab in the back? Or was it that their policies caused others to say, well, look, it's such a sudden turn of events, therefore we were stabbed in the back? Yeah, um, in particular, in the, the stab in the back idea is a kind of attempt to justify themselves by the war leaders, by the military men in charge of Germany in World War One. It's an excuse. We're not. It's not our fault that we lost. It's the Jews' fault or it's the socialists' fault or the communists' fault. Uh, and so, of course, they did promote it, particularly uh, in, in a huge committee of inquiry, a public committee of inquiry by the German parliament in the early to mid-20s, about why Germany had lost the war. And that's where they peddled their views. There's a lot of opposition to this idea in Germany. Of course, liberals and socialists and, uh, did not uh, accept this idea and fought very hard against it. Even 
uh, some conservative military experts, like Delbruck, for example, said there's no evidence for this at all. It's it, it, it's absurd. Uh, of course, the home front was um, in difficulties in in the later stages of the war uh, because of the Allied blockade and the economic problems and people were indeed um, starving in Germany. About a half a million or more German civilians in the home front actually died in the war because of malnutrition and related diseases. But the real defeat was a military one, not just on the Western Front because of the tanks and the American troops coming in, but also on the Eastern Front when Germany's ally, Bulgaria, collapsed. Uh, and then the Austro-Hungarian Empire, another major ally, uh, folded uh, in late October 1918, uh, causing Germany to sue for peace because they couldn't fight on without allies. <clears throat> so how significant of a contribution was stab-in-the-back theory to the rise of the Nazi party? And was it used not just for internal consumption, but also as some kind of a theory to explain international relations and actions by Nazi Germany? Uh, not really, no. I think you have to distinguish between the propaganda uses, which I said uh, were fairly minimal, really. Uh, they concentrated much more on what they called the November criminals, were the men who had sued for peace and signed the peace deal in uh, the armistice of the 11th of November 1918 and then the peace treaty the following year, which had surrendered. I, I didn't have any option because uh, they were militarily so weak, but um, and the German armies had melted away by that stage. But they'd surrendered uh, chunks of German territory. Germans had to admit to war guilt. They had to pay reparations for the damage they'd caused in the occupation of northeastern France and Belgium. They weren't allowed to have more than 100,000 men in the army. They had a uh, weren't allowed to have combat aircraft or a fighting navy, all of these things. And and Hitler focused his propaganda on the people, the men who'd signed the the peace deal, uh, not uh, the, the so-called stab in the back. Important thing, though, is that that stab in the back belief drove a lot of the policies of Nazi Germany. So I mentioned trying to get the Jews out of Germany, and about half of them were forced to emigrate between 1933 and 39, But also um, Hitler believed that uh, he had to try and maintain living standards as far as possible in Germany, and in particular to ensure that women and families at home, while their men were fighting at the front between 1939 and 1945, they did not become discontented because they didn't have enough to eat like they had in World War One, And so he arranged the policy uh, to have very um, generous allowance, family allowances for the families of soldiers, uh, just in order to, to, to stop, prevent what he thought might be a stab in the back. And it was in the end, um, he went down fighting and committed suicide rather than risk being accused of uh, weakness and signing a, any kind of peace treaty. Not that there was any chance of that because the, the Allies wanted unconditional surrender. So it drove a lot of Nazi thinking but wasn't used a huge amount in their propaganda. When did the Reichstag fire take place? <clears throat> Brown book? And what did the Brown book contend was behind yeah. the Reichstag fire? 
Well, this is my third chapter. Uh, and when Hitler was appointed head of the government on the 30th of January 1933, it was a coalition government in which most of the posts were held by uh, conservative nationalists uh, who were hoping to keep him in check. And uh, for some uh, weeks, he, he wasn't able really to think about how to turn this position in a coalition government into a dictatorship. Uh, we talk about Nazi seizure of power, but the seizure of power is a longer process, begins in, in the end of January when Hitler's appointed, but doesn't actually come to an end until July when Germany becomes a one-party state and, and a, a, a dictatorship. And the first really important step is on 27, 28 February 1933, when the German parliament building, the Reichstag, is burned down. And Hitler, Goering, Goebbels, all the rest of the Nazis blame this on the communists. And the communists in Germany at that time were very popular. They had 100 seats in the Reichstag from the elections of November 1932, the last free elections in the Weimar Republic before the Nazi party took power. Uh, they... If you add together the communists and the socialist vote, it was bigger than the Nazi vote in November 1932. And so these are the main enemies of the Nazis. And Hitler used the Reichstag by blaming it on the communists. The communists have plotted this conspiracy to take over power. And there's some kind of plausibility in this because they've taken over power violently in Russia in 1917. They tried this in Austria, Hungary in particular, there'd be a short-lived communist revolution mm -hmm. in uh, Munich in 1918-19. So uh, it was plausible. Uh, no substance to it at all. The communists uh, did not work in that way by 1933. And the idea of a common, violent communist seizure of power was just way, way off the, the mark. But Hitler used this to about abolish civil liberties to to so you could have banned the communists arrested them started arresting social democrats before long he was setting up concentration camps to house germany's internal enemies he um uh, he allowed the, the law allowed um phone tapping wiretapping surveillance it allowed arrest without trial all kinds of things the second step then is the so-called enabling act and 23rd of March 1933, when Hitler forces through the Reichstag by threatening, effectively threatening civil war, by excluding the communists um, uh, and browbeating the middle class parties. Only the socialists oppose this uh, into allowing a law that enables the cabinet, i.e. Hitler, uh, who's now packing the cabinet with Nazis, to pass laws without reference to the president, Hindenburg, or to the parliament. Uh, and that's the basis for the Nazi dictatorship. So the Reichstag fire, therefore, is very important. The communists, of course, uh, um, they kind of reversed the signs on the conspiracy theory. No, it wasn't them, it was the Nazis. This is a very common feature of conspiracy theories. Whoever benefits from something must have caused it. And so they stage a kind of mock, public mock trial in, in London, and they found the Nazis guilty of starting the Reichstag fire. And uh, whereas the Nazis' um, own conspiracy theory about communists starting it uh, had no traction, even 
the judges who tried some of the leading communists in Germany who the Nazis put on trial for the fire had to acquit them uh, because by this, by even in the autumn of 1933, the judges were still relatively independent. Uh, and they said, there's just no evidence for it. It's not enough evidence. We think it might have been the case, but we, nobody can prove it. So they're acquitted. And only one man, Marinus van der Lubbe, a young extreme left-wing um, Dutchman, not even a German, not even a communist, uh, he was found guilty and, and, and executed. And the evidence is overwhelming that van der Lubbe was the sole perpetrator of the Reichstag fire. What he tried to set, a number of other public buildings alight in Berlin, in fact, uh, in the previous days, and um, in a kind of protest, misguided protest against the German government's failure to deal with working class unemployment. Uh, it's unemployment. This is the this isn't the depression, right? This is the, the, the following the Wall Street crash. Over a third of German workforce is unemployed. It's a terrible situation. And van der Lubbe wanted to protest uh, the situation, so uh, van der Lubbe was executed, but. The belief that he was a kind of front man for um, a Nazi uh, plot uh, has not died. In fact, it's been revived recently.